I'll want you to keep it tuned right here. Up next, it's the McShank Podcast Boys, Ryan and Clayton, coming at you on KNPN in sunny Los Angeles. Doing the lethal weapon countdown. <laughs> is it on? Is it on one or is it on after one? <laughs> Welcome to the McShank Podcast, coming to you from our respective abodes for what we figured out was our 13th year doing this and it definitely was not an easy thing to figure out frankly (laughs) how long we've actually been doing it for but unfortunately we've been stuck inside our abodes since the last time you heard this episode (laughs) unfortunately because of this dang novel coronavirus pandemic Um, But welcome again, yearly tradition for our thousands of screaming fans. I'm Ryan. I'm Clayton. And Ryan, it's like I'm looking at you as if you're a CNN talking head right now. And my own window is about a quarter the size of that. So you look more like Ryan Limbaugh to me right now than... Oh, come on. (laughs) I'm much more pleasant and... You spreader of the good word. Oh, thank you. Thank Ryan. you. That's the only thing I'm spreading. That's the only thing I'm spreading these days. Well, That's right. Inside, wear a mask. That's why you're um, actually wearing a mask inside your own home right now. Take control, <laughs> podcast land. No one cared who I was till I put on the mask. He was a revolutionary. Who would have thought? Wait, did I even say a- my name yet? I'm Clayton. I might have just breezed right past that. (laughs) But yeah. Well, we're here. We're here. uh, Now, we normally like to do this episode early, mid-February and try to get it out maybe by the end of February to kind of catch whatever, maybe the Oscars or something like that. But typically just kind of buys us a little bit of time in order to be able to see all of the movies that we want to see to make sure that we have a well-rounded top 10 list. Uh, But unfortunately, since neither of us have stepped inside a movie theater in over a year, probably the saddest statement. On On that note, what was the last movie you saw in a theater? It was Onward. Disney Pixar's Onward. Yeah. Sort of like uh, we think maybe we're not really sure we were in a we were in a theater with like a bunch of kids. Obviously, it's a children's film and there was lots of like kids that were coughing and it all just kind of felt very uneasy. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks later, like 10 days later or something that everything kind of shut down. What about you? Last one I saw was in January. It was The Invisible Man. Oh, my goodness. January. January. <laughs> wow. So yeah, you've been waiting even longer than 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 we have. Was that yeah, fourteen months or so since? Yeah. Then. Who's so, counting? Yeah. Who's and, counting? and I I was actually really happy with that film. It will not make my list, but it was a, a good one to start an unimposed hiatus with. So because of no film festivals, no limited releases, New York and L.A. That's normally a time when we can scoop up a few of these stragglers that tend to release in late December. Clayton, I don't know if you've received your screeners yet or if you're planning on it or if they're going to send them. But basically, the reason that we're having to push this so far is not because of procrastination or laziness, which 
normally would probably be the answer, but this time it actually is. Judging by your collegiate record and right, exactly, mine, and mine as well, that would definitely be the answer. Yeah. But now we just didn't have a way to watch these movies. They kept sort of pushing release dates, and it's going to be on this service, going to be on this service. So we wanted to give ourselves a lot of time to make sure that we see everything we need to see so that, again, we can give you, we can put our best foot forward. We can give you the best list that we can give you. Because that's why we do this for you, the people. The people. Now, the the screener thing is an interesting one-off this year because the the amount, just based on sheer lack of breadth of films, is a probably about twenty five percent is what it is what it normally is every year, and ironically, most of them come from streaming platforms. Wow. <laughs> so the only hard copy streamers, you know, screeners I'm getting are from streaming platforms. <laughs> so, but uh, I don't know, you know, you figure it out. <laughs> Which is another really interesting thing. So we alluded obviously to it. We have not been to the movie theaters in some of us longer than others. Um, I kind of thought that maybe one film that I saw in theaters before everything shut down would have made it onto the list, but this list is 100% things that I watched at home and things from uh, films from streaming services. So I thought maybe I could sneak one in from the theater experience, but sorry, bad boys for life. You just missed a cut, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nothing on my list will have been seen in a conventional movie viewing service. It'll mm -hmm. be it'll be right from the indentation on my couch. Fair enough. And is this one of the first time? This is the first time we've ever done this show remotely, right? When it we is. were doing the Trans Pacific, when we did the Trans Pacific podcast that time you were in Australia, it's that was just time a we've done. Our flagship, if I may, show. flagship show remotely. We did one show from across an ocean. Mm -hmm. So that was and an agreement. Basically, yeah, you were getting your morning coffee and I was winding down my day or vice versa. I was getting my morning coffee tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And I'm like, oh, it's like uh, 630 here. Um, before I forget, really quick, we also, because we haven't had an opportunity to unveil it yet, but a few months ago, you alerted me to the fact that you had a friend of yours, an artist, who has done art for major motion pictures, major, multi-hundreds of millions of dollar budget feature films. And you asked him as a favor to draw you and I surrounded by some of our favorite film characters. So this is a man who took time out of his... I'm sure very high paying job, his yeah. very busy schedule. There are deadlines galore. They, they want to make release dates. They don't want to make movies. So it's a hard cutoff. If you're late for any reason, you get fired and the movie is suffers. So you said to this guy, Hey, do you, do you want to make a picture for this podcast that I host? <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about how that conversation went and maybe shout him out a little bit? Yes, yes. Lovely English bloke named Martin Mercer, storyboard artist who I worked with on Doolittle for what seemed like an interminable amount of my life. And 
developed a lot of goodwill. I was the storyboard coordinator at one point, one of the few hats that I wore. So I was directly overseeing his note-taking process and getting him what he needed for all his stuff. Built up a good rapport and post Doolittle just kind of hit him up one day. I was like, hey, so I want to make this podcast I'm a part of look like something. <laughs> at least on the outside. Because yeah. once you get in, you're happy. But on the outside... That's it. We yeah, gotta get so, you something to draw the draw you in a little bit. Yeah. Right. We we need that we need that stinger of some kind. And so my idea was, yeah, let's just put Ryan and me, let's use our college likenesses from my favorite photo of us together in film class. It's a great and, photo. And let's put us in a theater surrounded by characters broadly liked in film history, broadly known, plus our own little personal kind of deep cut favorites. And we both got to have a drink in our hands. It's got to be something that James Bond wouldn't send back. Mm -hmm. And we got to be looking at the camera, just giving our kind of smug look of satisfaction. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and let the viewers, I wander around the image to find all the cool stuff in it. So I do appreciate it. So you're going to see that on this episode. And I'll also post it on our Instagram page. So you guys can take a look at it and we'll tag it if he's got a at Instagram, shout him out a little bit. Um, and I do appreciate you squandering all of the goodwill that you built up on the movie on this. So I appreciate that. That's great. Yeah. Well, that's just my, that's just my, my commitment to whatever the hell it is we do here. Hey, who can explain it these days? <laughs> so this year we also did something a little bit different where normally our time frame for that year's movies are basically January 1, December 31st. If it, came out at any point whether it be a festival limited release we consider it that year's movie but since things got so shuffled and release dates got moved around there's basically we are kind of going off of what the academy awards are are basing it on that's kind of our time frame really it's not really super scientific but essentially if it was meant to be a 2020 movie and either came out in 2020 or got its release date shifted to 2021. Those are the the movies that are going to be quote unquote eligible for our list. Yeah. All the award seasons are it kind of protracted this year. They're kind of folding in those extra months of uncertainty where just nothing happened at all. And so I think we're probably going into the first few months of the year and still counting it as 2020 movies in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. And there there are certain movies that are that have come out this year that are basically they're, they were going to be 2021 movies anyway. It's not like they got moved. So they would technically be ineligible. I don't think they'll make it onto our list anyway. But mm -hmm. that's kind of how we want to frame the list. All well, right. Should we get into it in the most normal year for movies ever? Yeah. And it's going to be the most normal podcast. A sense of normalcy. That's what it is. We're, we're releasing it. People have been asking for it. I'm saying... It's fine. It's coming. Don't worry. What do we forget? Come on. No, no. This podcast will single-handedly flatten the curve. It'll just, it'll just give us a little bit of time here, guys. Yes. This podcast is as good as the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. If you somehow are able to, this podcast can cure the coronavirus is what I'm saying. Unless it's a particular strain, not picked up by the vaccine. <laughs> anyway, what's your anyway. number 10, Ryan? My number 10. Ooh, this feels good to be kind of getting into this, stretching it out a little bit. Uh, so my number 10 actually is a film that I could have seen in the theaters, 
but didn't get a chance to and only caught it when it was uh, when it was streaming. And that is The Way Back, mm. uh, starring some guy named Ben Affleck. Uh, yeah, you know, the Dunkin' Donuts guy. <laughs> <That> guy. <laughs> right, yeah. The guy, the guy who's the bomb in Phantoms. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm a sucker for a sports movie. I mean, I think you probably know that about me. I'm sure the listeners know that about me. But, And I think some of the best ones are films that kind of weave the drama that's going on outside or off the court or off the field and kind of melds it a little bit with what is happening on the court or on the field. Um, like Bull Durham, Crash Davis's sort of struggle with his minor league, you know, foreverness basically, uh, and his life and drama off the field and what he's dealing with on the field. So there's this seesaw of on the wagon, off the wagon with Affleck's character that does a great job of, of, of being good with the drama of like this ragtag group of guys trying to come together you know and he doesn't really get to be Affleck that is a like a basketball savant I mean he was this you hear stories of him being this amazing player oh he was the best high school basketball player I've ever seen he had a full ride to Kansas blah 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 but he's able to sort of look at the problem of the team and assess the best way to go forward and I think the real story of this movie is Ben's performance. I think there was some Oscar buzz, some kind of best actor buzz that was building a little bit when the movie came out, kind of maybe he could sort of be a dark horse, best actor kind of person. Um, I don't think he'll get there when the nominations are released soon, but I still think it's a very good performance from a very solidly dependable, respectable actor and I actually did have tentative plans to see this movie in the theaters. Um, but <laughs> my wife thought maybe you should like not because of COVID, you know, we uh, back in March when it came out, nobody really knew what was, you know, none of it was going on. you know, what, what was going on? We had no idea. And this was probably, I'd say three or four days before we actually locked down. So it was probably a good idea that, we didn't actually go um, to see the way back, but I ended up seeing it. It's on HBO Max as of this recording, so you should go check it out. The way back is my number. Yeah, two. I, have, I have not seen that, and I was wondering how much this would happen given our viewing habits are so isolated this year and probably taking divergent paths because just nobody can really join forces and go do anything as a group who is paying mind to the virus. So. Yeah, I am expecting that to happen suddenly more frequently on this list than I'm used to now. But yeah, uh, yeah but oh, I have not seen this one and didn't give two thoughts about it. So your recommendation here might get me around. Yeah, to it. I mean, it's a solid it's a solid two hour, uh, two hour watch. I think you'll there, there, there's a lot more sports, you know, stuff going on back and forth than I kind of originally thought. So, um, yeah, it's a solid enough watch. I, I liked it enough. Uh, number 10, the way back. My number 10 is probably the most minimalist movie, if I could describe it that way, that I saw this year. It's called The Assistant. Mm. It's directed by Kitty Green. It might be her first film, but it's extremely minimalist and a day in the life kind of film that is wholly of its time. And 
resonated with me particularly just because it's set in the entertainment industry. And I've, I've seen some of the things that this movie is dealing in, uh, not nearly in the, the, like the, the predator kind of connotations, but more in the, the condescending kind of, kind of connotations that some people in positions of power have with the help. So it, res- it did resonate with me in that way, but this particular movie focuses on an attractive female assistant and it goes about her day to day in such microscopic detail. It could almost be called a procedural. It's never explicitly stated what the office she's working at does, but it looks to be something in line with casting talent agencies kind of thing. It's a scarily accurate movie in terms of a couple of reasons, a portrait of an assistant in general, just what they do, how they're the adhesive of the office in many practical ways. And also with the condescending, often dismissive attitude that they're treated by the people higher ups, uh, whether they be predators or just, you know, a dick. Uh, <laughs> as someone, yeah, I have witnessed this kind of thing. And unfortunately, it all boils down to a choice. You know, it's a choice to treat people a certain way. And unfortunately, many people in these kind of more vaunted positions make the wrong one. But this movie in particular is a really good exhibition of, of me too, in terms of just, it nails the kind of permissive look the other way, mad men kind of culture that's being systematically uprooted in many of the industries we've seen in recent years, uh, film included. I mean, it essentially started with film for all intents and purposes. And it's it also spotlight spotlights, the, the cruel rationalizations that are made in order to kind of preserve the status quo. Uh, one particular, the powerhouse scene in this movie takes place in HR of all places where a complaint is going to be filed, but then it's like complaint career, complaint career, which is said in very, very subtle and indirect ways. That is, that is too obvious on the surface to be dismissed after you really think about it. But it's the implied horror of this movie and the, the kind of the would-be origins of what would you call like manipulative grooming that are the lifeblood of the film. And it gets a lot out of that mileage wise with very little traditional plot development. So it's a nice, really accomplished little indie movie this year that I recommend the assistant. Yeah. I, we watched it. I, I, I really liked it. Yeah. Uh, there, that, that HR scene is, is, is very interesting. Cause yeah, there's, there's a line, something along the lines of, well, you know, there's thousands of resumes. I get thousands of resumes a day and there's thousands of people and thousands of women that would love to be in your position and da, 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 da. And then when she has to talk to her family also, it's just incredibly heartbreaking because they're so proud of her and they're so happy. You could tell they're just beaming. And she's just in the lion's den. Yeah. And she's just, you know, and she wants to be happy for them and stuff. And she understood. But yeah, like it, it, it was just incredibly... Uh, shaking and yeah like it is minimalist that's a very good way to uh to put it my number nine is a netflix film back in uh september i'm thinking of ending things hmm. and uh i have a feeling maybe this will show up on your list i'm not sure i can't uh say one way or the I may other have given you a rave text message <laughs> <laughs> uh we normally don't know what is on each other's list but i think this one might uh this one might show up and i think that we we're just now to a point where the only the only people qualified as of right now to make Charlie Kaufman scripts are Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman. 
I think those are the those are the only two people that I think kind of have what it takes to really extract all of the weirdness and zaniness and everything. And there are times in this movie, I will say, where it does sort of I feel like it maybe kind of gets it's it sort of eats itself a little bit because Charlie's like, well, I wrote this and here's look at this weird direction and it all just kind of starts to cannibalize itself. But it's existential and zany at the same time, which I don't really know if that's, I mean, only Charlie Kaufman, I feel like, can you have those two phrases? I think those two adjectives together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's I'm interesting. Gonna, I mean, it's I'm just going to stop you right there. Cause it, Go ahead. I'm thinking of ending things as my number eight. So I'm okay. just going to talk Let's about go it. For it then. Yeah. yeah, we can, we can, we can talk about it. Keep going. Um, it's not entirely clear what is happening in this movie when you first watch it or when it starts to unfurl itself a little bit. It follows a woman, Jesse Buckley, uh, who's going to her new boyfriend's house in the country or his parents' house in the country. And what follows is a series of, I guess, almost unexplainable events, really, from the woman from Jesse Buckley reciting a poem that she later reads in a book in Jesse Plemons's bedroom uh, when he meets his parent, uh, Jesse Plemons's parents played by David Thewlis and Tony Collette. Uh, he sees her photo hanging on the wall, like in, in their family, their ages can constantly change their look changes, their health changes. I mean, there's just so much stuff that you're, you basically don't really know what to grab onto for, a good while, I think. And you're sort of, I think placing, you know, Charlie Kaufman has basically imbued enough trust over the years, over his 20 plus years of being in film to where you're like, I may not know what the fuck is going on at this moment, but I'm just going to trust that he knows where it's leading essentially. Um, And that leads to a dramatic and enthralling musical number that practically appears out of nowhere. And I mean, I don't really want to like spoil how it ends, but there's really a key piece of information that kind of assists in bringing the rest of the film into focus as soon as you're done watching it, or it starts to kind of become a little bit clearer. Um, And I think looking at it through that lens, it's one of those ones where you get that piece of information and then all the other stuff starts to kind of fall into place a little bit. And I like that. It's almost like a domino. You know, you you knock that first domino over where you figure out what's going on and then it just goes and goes and goes. Um, Yeah, really, I thought it was a very good analog for 2020 where there's just chaos happening all over and you're not quite sure it's all good. So you should probably just stay inside until it all blows over, frankly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah I, I, uh, I find that interesting. I wasn't sure where you were at based on our, our brief text conversation. It sounded like you were a little more on the fence, but maybe that was uh, all a smokescreen at the time. Yeah, um, yeah, just I was setting you up. I was just setting yeah. you up for later on. No, I just right. I, it's one of those ones where I, I think it deserves to you can read more about it or you, you know, I thought more about it. And and once you kind of know where it's headed and you know where it is, that's when it really kind of clicked in. It wasn't maybe like right as you finished watching it, but a day or two, it stuck with you. So. Yeah, this, this movie's clearly not for everyone. Um, One review I, I saw on Letterboxd from a, we'll say less enthusiastic viewer simply stated 
I'm thinking of ending my Netflix subscription. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I loved, I thought it was rich, provocative. I love kind of the, the chilly snow globe like vibe it was living in, which kind of seems to exist outside of time, which of course folds into the narrative you're about to see pretty perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved the two Jessies. What a great tandem there, Plemons and Buckley. They, their world just always seems kind of slightly canted. You know, it's like everything is being seen at an angle and you're not really sure where you're headed. I, I, there's so many readings you can take out of this movie and, and depending on which one you, you, you stick to, if you watch it again and kind of start from that point, I think you can find your way with just about any of them. The ones I kind of gravitated to were, you know, there's a lot of commentary on just the inevitable abyss of aging and and degeneration in various ways. There's, I mean, I even got a little bit of a commentary on non non binary gender identity out of it, possibly. Interesting. Um, maybe even kind of a schizophrenic reading on just stifled youth in general, which kind of is speaking more to the uh, the title and how it kind of has its colloquial connotation of ending a relationship. But in the movie, it gets a little more uh, serious, dark, but I think ultimately hopeful how you interpret that title. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you alluded to the third act. I mean, it really is a through the looking glass kind of the third act. You're not really sure where it's going, but I'm with you. I was completely transfixed and riveted by it and the the acting was phenomenal i thought jesse buckley just murdered this role i mean with those existential diatribes just in the car talking Mm -hmm. ostensibly to herself but also to the camera you're not really sure who she's talking for are these really her words is she a real person like all, all these questions are swirling around and and this was one I just kind of wanted to, it passed the, uh, you're fond of saying the, the run it back test for me mm-hmm. this year, where I would have just sat down and watched it again, had, had I the, the time or the luxury. <laughs> so. well, and Yeah. I mean, and that's, I think an interesting subversion of, I mean, that's what Charlie Kaufman does. I mean, he doesn't make a movie strictly on its face value. And so when you see Jesse Buckley and you see, you know, I mean, the the marketing had her pretty prominently featured. Uh, the trailer is just her talking over and over again. I'm thinking of ending things, and yeah, for you to for for it to sort of drift more away from her being a main character or even a character is interesting because that's the first person that you see when the film opens, and you know, you kind of go along with her on this journey, and then you know, it just gets wild in the third act so yeah um, i couldn't explain it to you well i still i've still only seen it once but uh but i was i was having a grand old time while it was definitely on. definitely all right i guess we'll all right what's number your number nine, nine then yeah my number nine number nine three words number nine number nine can it yoko <laughs> uh promising young woman is my number nine a, a movie that is, is how shall we say, provocative? Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, director Emerald Fennell can call this movie a dark comedy all she wants, and it that's in there, indeed, but it doesn't really pay nearly enough lip service to how disturbing I found this film. There's 
I think inarguably a primal scream being echoed here along the canyon walls that's not really in the shape you might think going in, but kind of lurking beneath all the, the pop tunes, the, the neon flourishes, the, all those saccharine stylizations. It's almost like a, you know, a pop bubblegum version of a rape revenge story on the surface, but it is, I think at its core, just a lacerating indictment of toxic masculinity and the culture that protects it and kind of a portrait of, of, of self-destruction in a way, like traumatic self-destruction. And it's something of an outlier narratively because the most important character in this film is never shown on screen. You know, she has an avenging angel of sorts and she's always referenced secondhand, but she's not actually in the movie, which I found to be kind of an interesting window into it. Uh, I love the ambiguity that the director gives Cassie played by one of my favorites and the the venerable Carrie Mulligan. There's just an ambiguity in how these interactions play out where she's taking creepy guys home from the club and pretending to be intoxicated, whereby luring their worst instincts out of them, whether they are their worst instincts or their normal instincts is yet to be seen, but we don't really know what happens once her, once her snap back to reality, like, excuse me, what are you doing? Kind of moments happens Mm -hmm. and we kind of just cut away and we don't really know where that goes. And the, I found the, the uncertainty, like, a little off, a little off-putting and offsetting there, which I ended up liking in the end. But they even play with that a little bit in the very beginning after she takes Adam Brody or Adam Brody takes her back, and she's walking home doing the what you think is the walk of shame, and it just sort of pans up from her feet, and you see she has red th- stuff on her shoes and on her dress, and you're like, oh my god, he totally killed this guy. But then she's eating food or something, and it's just something that dripped, something red that dripped under her, under her dress and her shoes and stuff. And it, so it definitely does a good job of making you think that oh, this guy got his blood drained tonight, but nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's bleeding out in the gutter somewhere for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, her her methods are are certainly Machiavellian in some sense, but more hyper-focused on just her perceived notions of justice and the comeuppance that these people need to get that society ever uh, rarely ever delivers on. Um, Shout out to Bo Burnham, whose effortless charm and awkward humor are a major highlight of the film uh, until it's not. (laughs) Uh, The direction I found really absorbing. It only, I think, some of the plot twists kind of there's a little over reliance on coincidence there kind of strays a little bit from the kind of things I like, but nothing too egregious. There's some classic Hollywood screw tightening in there to really amp up the stakes of the plot. I wasn't completely on board with, but in the end it was just small gripes. I'm not sure the movie quite knows how to end itself in the last 10 minutes in a, in a way that I, that I would have liked, but like I said, small gripes. I found this to be a, a really affecting movie cloaked in these kind of candy colored laughs and man, probably the best titled movie of the year for me. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Cause you, when you, when you learn more about, about Cassie and her, pro, the, the promise that she had and, Oh, you, you know, you could have gone all the way and everything. Yeah, definitely. So this is my number seven. So maybe I'll just say a couple, I'll just kind of add in a couple things on here. Um, 
it's labeled as a thriller when you pull it up on Amazon. But I, I also think it was kind of marketed that way. But it's not exactly how it plays out. I mean, dark comedy, you mentioned that there's a little bit there's elements of that, but you are you're almost expecting more violence. And maybe that's part of the subverting the expectations that it's the emotional violence that is really right. Yeah. I mean, and it doesn't always necessarily have to be physical. Um, But Emerald Fennell had said that in an interview that she thinks the film is not a revenge thriller or some gleeful kill bill esque story. She says it's a story about addiction, which is an interesting way to kind of look at it. That Cassie is not her main focus is not, revenge and I need to do this or the other. She's addicted to doing this and can't stop herself. Even when she's in a good situation, even when she has somebody who will stand by her amidst all of her picadillos uh, in Ryan, but she still can't help, but go back out to the club and try to get a drunk guy to, 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 take her home basically that's interesting i'm I'm not sure that thread came through for me as much as she is wanted it to saying it colored her 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 vision of the film Mm -hmm. like that's an interesting angle for sure it's an interesting lens with which to view it it never occurred to me but i at the end of the day i always felt it was that deep reservoir of pain and of loss that she's going through that was motivating all of it but yeah i mean the addiction thing could come into the more kind of random the you know your supposed one night stand scenarios mm-hmm. that, maybe that's where the addiction yeah. part comes in where it's not directed towards someone who was in her crosshairs for any real reason mm-hmm. but that might be where the addiction comes in and the last thing i'll say about it is the casting uh we talked about bo burnham but all of the guys in this story your adam brody your sam richardson your christopher mince plass max greenfield are all actors who normally get cast as the nice guys hmm. in projects. Hmm. I mean, and these are guys that are basically the whole, their whole careers are just based around being the nice, lovable, oh, I'm going to be the guy that comforts you when your douchebag boyfriend breaks up with you or whatever. And so it's sort of like furthering the idea that maybe the nice guys are the ones you have to worry about the most, almost. So uh, an interesting casting choice for her, but I think is really inspired. So that was my number seven, but uh, but yeah, I, yeah. Just uh, looking forward to it when it. I saw the marketing and loved watching it. A lot of twists and turns, a lot of unexpected scenarios playing out. It was, it was kind of the most uncomfortable, joyful watch of, of mm-hmm. the year. And it, it ends yeah. up being that you're not sure where it's going, but you end up really on board with it by the time it's over. Uh, what are we on now? So I already gave away my number eight. With I'm thinking of ending things. Is this your number eight? So this would be my number eight, and it's a film you can see, a Hulu special called Palm Springs. <laughs> nice. And I really wanted to have it higher. I really did. I, I like this movie a lot. I just couldn't make a place for it higher with some of the other films. But, I mean, this movie is a just a delight. Like, this movie is breezy. It's the perfect quarantine film. You just throw it on. You don't have to worry about anything. It's fun. It, it, it has twists and turns and, you know, lots of interesting things to kind of keep you interested. Obviously, the interesting things would keep you interested. What a stupid sentence that was. But it's like, I think I'm, I, I'm on my fourth class of whiskey, so I'm sure those are going to come for me any moment now. 
I'm drinking, by the way, in case nobody. Hey, so am I. You've probably been able to hear it. Um, <laughs> so I think to say that it's an updated version of Groundhog Day is to minimize it. Oh yeah, I think that's, it, that's the obvious comparison. But it, there's, there's there's a lot yeah. there's a lot more fun things going on here than that. Absolutely. I mean, and it because it kind you know it shares the time loop aspect of it that 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 film used that other films have used. But there's a cool share literally two people you know two people share like that is the thing i enjoy the most yeah Mm -hmm. but there's also like a sci-fi slash science like real science factor uh and you get to the end of it and you kind of feel like you could figure out how to get out of a time loop if you worked hard enough and were given <laughs> a thousand really years or really cared enough, whatever it is. Yeah. Like, cause you know, that's basically the, a, a portion of this movie is one of the characters trying in vain to learn quantum physics and you know, like <laughs> yeah, degrees. Like a, a truck stop diner. Yeah. And people like getting the, you know, the, 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 the people that she's reading have just like devoted their life to quantum physics. And she's like, well, I'm stuck in a time loop. So I'm just going to go ahead and take the exact amount of time that you had and try to figure it out for myself. But uh, the, the, you have the time loop element, but the chemistry and the relationship between Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti, it absolutely needs to shine, I think, to make it work. And I think they just absolutely succeed with leaps and bounds. Uh, great supporting performances from J.K. Simmons as the mysterious Roy, who you first meet when he shoots an arrow into Andy Samberg's back. Yeah. Uh, Connor O'Malley, uh, he was on the sketch show, I Think You Should Leave, and he's just like an internet sketch comedian. He's one of the members of the wedding party. I don't know if you remember. He was the guy who asked Kristen Milioti if she wants to dance. She's like, ew, no. And he goes, it's fine. I don't want to anyway. And he does like this dance move, this crazy like. Yeah, right. Yeah. But he was so funny. Uh, and June Squibb for about two minutes. So right. uh, that was a that, that was a welcome surprise. But uh, you can find it on Hulu. And it broke a record at the time for uh, a, a movie purchase uh, on Hulu. Uh, basically at Sundance. It premiered at Sundance last year. Uh, I'm so glad it's on Hulu. I'm so glad it's in the world and we can kind of watch it wherever we want. It's hilarious. It's sweet. It's fun. It's bright. I think you'll love Palm Springs if you haven't seen it. My number 11 movie of the year. I, I do. I did love how Kristen Milioti, like she goes from prickly to she kind of, you know, kind of folds open a little bit. It gives you a little more insight into her character and then she just kind of shrivels right back up to prickly again as soon as as andy sandberg is not quite on her wavelength anymore and Mm -hmm. uh, yeah i did love how the movie continued to surprise you even when you thought all the cards were on the table with just you're not quite sure how long andy sandberg has been in this time loop so he has done things that you did not think he had done until you realized oh of course he's been in this for presumably years so yeah he probably just about everything and yeah. This, movie, this movie had the funniest line of the year for me, which got the most raw, guttural laugh out loud. I need to pause the movie moment. And it, I won't give the complete line away, but it involves the not often discussed country Equatorial Guinea. <laughs> I, it, it killed me. Yeah, my number 11 film. Big fan. <laughs> All right. What's your number eight? I think that was my, we've already done my. Oh, yeah. You have- I'm going to seven. Go to seven. Because I already gave you my seven. So, yeah. 
going to seven. And this is where Steve McQueen's lofty shadow starts to loom over my list. My number seven is Lover's Rock. This is the second film in the small acts. I guess it's a mini series. I mean, they don't really qualify for the Academy as far as I'm aware, even though they're right. Some of them are right on the cusp of feature length, but I think it's getting written off in the TV category, which for me is a shame. I think there's some really good cinematic stuff here that deserves that kind of film platform. But Lover's Rock, this is film two, like I said. It's about 70 minutes long, and so this is easily the shortest film ever to grace my well-intentioned and quasi-pretentious list. (laughs) Quasi? Uh, Come on. Yeah, quasi. (laughs) I'm trying to be modest. I'm still being pretentious. Fair fair enough. Yeah, uh, but Steve McQueen dedicates this film in the post credits to all the lovers and the rockers, and for all intents and purposes, that's a synopsis of the film. It kind of eschews a traditional three act structure and pays tribute to London's West Indies community, like the remainder of these films in the series do. This one's set in the 1980s. It's a sensual, wall melting sex pot of 70 minutes uh at one point i think even the walls are excreting sex in close-up uh it's a floor stomping sweaty dirty ode to vitality and expression in an era marked by heightened racism and trepidation while still finding some time to shed light on difficult social realities and some of the pitfalls of just in-group human nature even within their own community Lover's Rock is, at the end of the day, a party. And while it's in the throes of, of lovers on the hunt amidst scores of impassioned and gyrating bodies, if you'll forgive me some wax poetic time here, it's a mesmerizing party and a mesmerizing movie. Lover's Rock is my number seven. All right. Yeah, did not see any of the small axe films. I know it's... Uh... But I think because John Boyega, he was nominated in the miniseries category at the Golden Globe. So, yeah, I guess maybe they are treating it more like a yeah, miniseries. He's in film three called Red, White and Blue, which wasn't one of my favorites. But, yeah, this needs to be in the film category. And then once you once anybody sits through it, they'll they'll understand why. So my number seven was Promising Young Woman. So I guess I'll go on to my number six then, I guess. I don't even know if we're in the right order anymore, but go for it. I'm going for it. And it's a film you can find on Amazon Prime, and it's called One Night in Miami. Mm. Yeah. And so the it bills itself as a fictionalized meeting of these four black minds, you know, four minds that are in the 1960s. Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, uh, Muhammad Ali, and Jim Brown. And really, I mean, I, you know, I don't really particularly care that this meeting probably didn't happen the way that it it's portrayed in the film, but I absolutely loved sharing the two hours with this group of guys at a very important time in all of their respective histories. Um, and this was the uh, film adapted from a play that I enjoyed the most this year. And it's just, I think it's a great adaptation. It moves locations enough to feel like a movie, but still has that underlying, the tremendous monologues that 
keep it true, I think, to its stage roots. Um, probably pound for pound the best ensemble cast performance all year long. I think these, you you get to the end of it and you start to kind of think about, well, who did the best? And you think, okay, maybe Kingsley Benadire did was your favorite because of his per- performance of Malcolm X. And then you go, oh, well, gosh, Leslie Odom Jr. was so good as <laughs> Sam Cooke in that end when he sings chain's going to come and everything. And I mean, it's just, yeah, like there, there's so many performances that uh, really just move the film forward. And first time feature film director, Regina King, she doesn't really get a chance, I think, to show off her visual chops, but I think the writing and the acting especially is so top notch that kind of all she really has to do is position her lens and just sort of like go, you know, like just go for it. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, this will come up a little bit with one of the other films on my list, but it's a little bit, it's interesting that you can look at a film or a time period like this now, back in the mid to late sixties. And it's relatable to today insofar as that it's frustrating that the same conversations are still probably happening. Yeah over black lives matter in the year 2020 and 2021 as they were in the mid 1960s. And it's like, aren't we supposed to be (laughs) this like great bit of progress and everything. So it's, it is relatable, but you almost wish it wasn't like you almost wish that this was a sort of an artifact of a bygone age where, you know, these like four pillars of the black community are trying to come together to figure out, what is what's the best way we can go about trying to achieve equality and achieve it, you know, and so I don't want to get off too much, but I really enjoyed one night in Miami. I think the acting really um, se- sells it for me. I have so, not. Yeah. One I, night. Yeah. I missed this one. I've heard good things though. It's on my list. The Ryan McCarran recommendation will vault it up a little higher. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure on me, by the way. I, I appreciate you saying that, but a lot of goddamn pressure. on you. <laughs> We do, I think, also not necessarily see eye to eye on something. So it's sort of, you know, it's I don't know. I, yeah, we'll see how far Tenet ends up on your list <laughs> <laughs> before we before we fully delve into that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, so my number six is once again, I don't think it's ever happened before, but then again, I've never had two films from a miniseries, even in contention for a list. But my number six is Mangrove, which is the technically film number one in the Small Axe series. And it's the only one that really meets the definition of feature length. It's a little over two hours. And there were a couple kind of prestigious courtroom dramas this year focusing focusing on social justice. And Chicago 7 was one of them. And this was probably my preference by a, by a mile of those two, even though I did enjoy trial of Chicago seven, but this one elevated my pulse most consistently and my spirit soared most reliably with the examination here of the mangrove nine, which was, I believe a 1970s case in London, focusing on again on a West Indies community that was being harassed by local law enforcement, which for all intents and purposes is the establishment and really really reflected just the changing 
racial and cultural landscape that was having a lot of detractors, both out of racism and just as per usual out of fear. Well, the eponymous restaurant, which is called Mangrove at the center of this, is basically, well, how to best phrase this? There's, this is a familiar film in many ways in terms of the shape, where you think it's going, its structure, but I think rarely has it been this powerful, at least powerfully done. And to kind of evade the classic trappings of, you know, boring, good versus evil, broad dichotomies, you know, really, you know, white people are evil, the black people on the other side are good. It, it really paints with a lot more subtlety and sophistication there. Even in the the villains, I think Steve McQueen gives them their, their due. And on the side of the, the, uh, the West Indies population, which is kind of there's a philosophical difference at the core of them some of them like they want they want justice they want to stop being harassed but not all of them are as committed to take this to its to the bitter end in court because that could potentially risk you know something approximating life imprisonment if it goes wrong so there's a this constant dichotomy in the movie just within the west indies community of this idea of the individual versus the collective. Do you want to approach this case for social justice on an individual term in terms of what you're willing to lose by it versus what you can get out of it? Or do you want to approach it in the terms of the collective of the community, which is we're going to take this risk because countless generations in our wake could directly be affected by it. And we're going to take whatever consequences we get if the system is not our side, we end up losing. We're just going to do it because we're on the right side of history and it's the right thing to do. So that's kind of the friction that the movie really successfully deals in. And it's kind of at the expense of individual character development. We don't really get a lot of shades of character just from the individuals because it's such a broad cast of characters. So it more focuses on this collective idea. And that's just a negligible sacrifice in my mind um, because mangrove is is really exceptional i would say artful entertainment with a totally inflamed heart that deserves to be seen so mangrove is my number six yeah i mean it's just yeah i mean that that seems to be the uh the one the people that people like the most i think yeah it's between mangrove and lover's rock and that was definitely how i kind of angled toward Walking mm-hmm. them is those those were the two that stood that stood that that stood out the most to me and okay. obviously reflected by being bedfellows on the list. So there you go. Yeah, you just couldn't decide, so you just thought, well, I'll just stick, stick them both next together. To each other. Yeah, let them fight it out. <laughs> right. So my number five is a film that can be found on HBO Max, another early 2020 release, and it's. Never, rarely, sometimes, mm-hmm. always. I just saw this three days ago. Yeah, I saw you post a review about it, and I, I didn't click on it. I uh, figured we could chat about it. But it's the first of two narrative films on the, my list that sort of feel more like documentaries. I mean, there's a lot of oh, yeah. close camera work. There's just a lot of... I mean, well, with this film especially, there's just a lot of just dread i think surrounding it there's not really much of a score 
it's quiet just the you hear a lot of the city a lot of the times that's sort of what is leading you through the movie but it's a it's a quiet film as well i mean it like the you know you are the reason you're hearing the sounds of the city and the sounds of the ambient noise is because there's just not there's just a lot of quiet going on um but it's really crushing honestly like this this portrayal of a 17 year old's trials and tribulations to cross state lines to get an a legal abortion only to have her run out of money run out of shelter i mean it's it's a harrowing look at what women and especially young women have to put up with basically both physically and emotionally um i mean there's a there's a there's kind of a sickening underbelly to this film that isn't quite as apparent or obvious when you're first watching it and kind of reveals itself to you after you sit with it for a while. And I think that's sort of along the lines of who actually ended up getting her pregnant in the first place. There's yes. I had my suspicions about that as well. Yeah. And so the, the scene itself, because when you see that title, Never rarely, sometimes always, because you hear it, you know, you hear it said like that quickly, never rarely, sometimes always. And you think, oh, this is, you know, kind of an odd. I'm not really sure what to think about this when I'm going to get into the it. Movie. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. You don't really know what to make of it until you sit down. And no. Watch. And then when it does become apparent, you kind like, of smack, smack yourself. Oh, my your God. Head. You're like, like, of course, of course, that's what it meant. Yeah. And I had a visceral reaction. I mean, I, I just was like biting my thing, like just biting my hand. It's just like, cause it's so gripping cause they don't cut hardly at all. I think there's maybe one cut in the entire scene, but the camera stays on Sydney Flanagan's face. Sydney Flanagan plays uh, the young girl who needs the abortion. And it just keeps it there for an uncomfortable amount of time as she's asked questions about her sexual partners, her health, her overall well-being, And, that never rarely sometimes always is this other series of questions where how often do you do these things, you know, and, and they're just sort of putting it all together into, into one sequence. It's reminiscent of the, the dinner scene in four months, three weeks, two days, which is <laughs> another one where they just another, you know, it's he- I think it's heavily influenced that this movie is, borrowing a little bit i think from that one uh and it's another one where it just sort of like plants the camera for an uncomfortable amount of time while this uncomfortable conversation takes place and we've talked about it before but you're just sort of like begging for a cut like you're just begging for that like the sweet release of a cut to just like get me so i don't have to watch this anymore well it was one of those things where i didn't realize we were in a long take until minutes in yeah. Because because it was that absorbing in the moment. Yeah. And then it just keeps going on for a, lo- a, a little bit longer after that. And you're like, oh, my God, please. Um, but no. it was a very affecting. Yeah. Very affecting film. I, I'm actually I'm looking forward to seeing her previous film. This director, Eliza Hitman, she made a film called Beach Rats from a few yeah. years ago, and it looked kind of interesting. But this is a very, very strong film with dramatic elements that I you wouldn't really believe and um so i guess guess the movie technically leans liberal because she is getting an abortion just politically but i think it plays it more down the line and 
it's more of a, in an odd way, a procedural, you know, cause it's, there's not a lot said. It's a almost wordless screenplay. And it's just about them going through the, you know, it, it turns out to be Herculean steps to cross state lines and to, and to do this. And, oh, you can't do it at this clinic. You got to do it at this clinic. And where am yeah. I, gonna, where am I going to stay that night? I don't have any money and I can't ask for money because I'm keeping this a secret because people are going to mm-hmm. hate me if they know about it. And, but it's more just, it's, I think it's more just a movie about empathy, you know, and, and really putting yourself in the shoes of someone in this situation and not just casting stones from your ivory tower, you know, depending, no matter what your, you know, your, your viewpoint on this, which as far as I'm concerned, be, forever be an unresolved social issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's more just about that kind of put yourself in their shoes and, and realize that life is fucking complicated and this is what yeah. this person's doing and you may not like it, but that's what's happening. So, yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, it's the, it, it takes more of a human look at this particular topic, you know, yeah. and the people that are involved and the, how it affects, you know, what are the ripple effects of how this affects people? You know, I mean, we, we say we because she ends up taking her cousin who she works with and is close with in her town. She ends up taking her cousin with her for. I mean, I don't think even think she knows what she wants. Does she want moral support? Does she want a friendly fit? I just think she just is sort of flying by the seat of her pants because it's such a it's such a unique and it's such a foreign thing that you're like, well, I don't. I have no idea what I'm doing and, but I want somebody else to be there with me who also has no idea what they're doing as a way to sort of commiserate, I suppose. But yeah, yeah. um, No no movie really anchored its emotional center more to a single scene than this movie did. I mean, that, Mm -hmm. that scene is the movie and it just passes it with flying colors. So, so yeah, big, big fan. It, uh, it was probably one of the two or three movies vying for number 11 for me. Mm Mm-hmm. So that was my number five. And that right now, again, as of taping, you can find that on HBO Max. So the good news is you could probably see our entire list. You can go in order. You can do the McShank marathon and just like blow through all these movies in a day. Yeah. A surprised number of over, a surprised amount of over, overlap for me, not just of movies on the list, but movies that we've seen. Cause I thought we would just have seen almost entirely different movies for some reason this mm-hmm. year, because we're not talking about it again. We're not going to see it, but mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of overlap you know, some on the list, but just that we've seen. So this is nice. Yeah. There's also a finite amount. I think that also helps. So there's also (laughs) the sample size is is a little reduced, much smaller. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So my number five is Minari. And I think this might be the most 2020 movie of the year in terms of the balm that we need as a culture (laughs) to make amends, to reconcile and to move forward. I think this is the movie that I would recommend to this entire polarized godforsaken country at this particular moment. It's a tender look at an outsider family in, I guess you'd say the throes of survival in in ways both out in the open and ways that are in a sense captive to the beating heart, which you get into really quick. If you, if you've seen it, you know what that's referring to. It's an intriguing premise a Korean family in Reagan era, America, moving to the Ozarks of Arkansas. It, the story just kind of quietly plays out with all its trials and tribulations. And 
I guess, philosophical battlegrounds aired out between the mother and father of this nuclear family for better, for better and for worse. Um, the father played by Steven Yen, who I'm just loving more and more in each film I see him in. He picks mm-hmm. really interesting roles and I think he's got a lot more to him than just running from zombies. It would turn out his, uh, his dream of owning a large plot of land and shifting his family's means toward farming is met by the mother of the family as with extreme skepticism. And she would prefer kind of where they came from, which was the comfort of family and friends in California. There's the children played by David or played by Alan Kim, kid named David and Anne played by Noel Cho weathering the the storm of kind of parental infighting and also having to acclimate to a patch of the country that just instinctively views them with this kind of trepidation and david has a heart murmur which crucially drives a lot of the plot and makes each day without incident kind of a luxury and just underscores the family's risk of having to move to this place to begin with away from the metropolitan California area with all its you know, cutting edge medicine and quick access to doctors and, and all of that. There's, there's a cultural barrier here to some of the things that really work, which I think is educational for a lot of people viewing it with Western eyes, but it's what I really, really loved is that all the conflict and the dynamics in this movie and this family, they're just startlingly and refreshingly human in ways that I think are appreciable by everybody. And it succeeds for a couple of reasons. One reason is its view of family, very keen, very insightful view of family and also kind of by what it refuses to become. You would think there'd be a substantial racial component to this movie, whether it's an antagonist antagonistic viewpoint against this family moving into this rural kind of white state like Arkansas, but the residents of Arkansas treat them like they would any other family mixture of casual indifference to kind of open armed generosity. And it's that last thing that kind of screams out to me as this movie being essential to time and place in, in 2020, there's a, refreshingly human and nationless streak running through this film that I think would be nothing but a tonic for where we are right now. So I'll leave it there. Minari is my number five. Yeah. Um, uh, I did see this one. It did not make my list though. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say I do think I do find it the, I, I think the thing that it does the best is it's an inherently American story just because a Korean family is the one that is that it's we're following. It is an, an American story of moving to try to better yourself, moving to moving to a new place to try to improve your life and your family's life and the struggles and that that entail and everything like that. So even though, and I think that's kind of the big issue with its inclusion in the foreign language film, category that it's been nominated for especially with the golden globes and they're thinking maybe with the academy awards as well is that it is it's an american film with americans yeah that's who just that's, happened to look yeah. like korean who just are from korea but they are americans 
that's this, that, that's borderline insulting. It is. And so, but so, so, so I think that that story is resonant no matter what. And I think that that is important because so often, and that's why I think inclusion is, I mean, obviously inclusion is very important, but this is sort of a way that it can kind of play out is that you can get stories where the Asian character isn't doing a thing that a stereotypical Asian character would normally do. Their, their Asian-ness has absolutely almost nothing to do with the movie itself. Now, there's some cultural aspects of it with bringing in the mother, the, the, the wife's mother, to live with them. But at the end of the day, it's still just you're trying to get the American dream. These Americans are trying to capture the American dream. And so I think that it does, it should, and it does go a long way into showing that these are how these types of films can be made in the future. You yeah. don't have to be afraid of, you know, this person not doing what they're, what they normally do. They're characters. They're, they're film characters. They can look the, they can look however they want to look. My number four, we're getting down to it here. Coming down the home stretch uh, is Sound of Metal. Yeah, that's a good movie. I liked it. Another another uh, Amazon Prime exclusive, and I was kind of thinking about this after watching it. Basically, with movie theaters having been closed, I think a, a thing that you kind of miss out on a little bit. And I don't. I, I think you you try to miss out on it a little bit on purpose, but we don't see trailers anymore. I feel like you, you, you see a film and there's trailer. You could be, you, you could probably say I'm sick of X trailer by like the middle of last year or, you know, or the middle of 2019. There's a trailer that you just see all the time when you go to movies and it's just like, the, okay, but we don't have that experience anymore. <laughs> so we don't. And I think that for this movie, especially I didn't really have much go. It, I, I didn't have much knowledge of it going in other than I heard Riz Ahmed was excellent in it and it was free on Amazon prime <laughs> and it came highly recommended by Amazon for that. I watch it. So oh, the persuasive argument free on Amazon. It really is. It's hey, and you know what? I could sit on my couch and watch it. But so I kind of went into it thinking I'm going to get this like grungy, dingy, intense, whiplash-esque portrayal of a metal drummer trying to cope with the loss of his hearing. Yeah. But what you get is this tender film that's like rough around the edges, I think due to, to Riz Ahmed's absolutely star turn and a film about starting over and reinventing yourself, not of your own accord, really sort of more out of necessity than anything else. I mean, there's very few scenes of metal music being played. Oh, it's over in. I mean, the first five ten minutes, even. Yeah, yeah, ten you know, and the metal's over. Yeah, and it trades those like shitty clubs for a school and a sober living house for deaf people, where Riz Ahmed's character Ruben learns quote how to be deaf unquote, which is one of the things one of his jobs when he first arrives at this place is he's told he has to learn how to be deaf and he plays this part with such grace such power sort of alternating his performance between acceptance of his fate and also his anger towards it 
and it can kind of shift a little bit depending on the situation. There's lots of times when he feels like he's, you know, ready to, to, to be in this, but there's other scenes where you, he thinks this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Um, he's not. And so because of that, I don't think he's not really sure where he fits in and he struggles with accepting himself and opening up to others too. But when he starts to ingratiate himself with the school kids that he's assisting and teaching and, he becomes a valuable part of a community. So there's that aspect of it, but there's also another aspect of his life that kind of keeps drawing him back. And it's this sort of, this sort of pie in the sky thought that maybe I can get back and get back to my old life and be a metal drummer again and driving a, in a van from club to club. But it's not, it's it sort of, it keeps him from sort of fully committing to one side or another. He's constantly, on both sides of the fence. Um, but really the guy who plays the tough, but fair owner of the sober living home, Paul Rossi, Rossi, he, uh, he probably won't win an Oscar for this, but he was fantastic. Like he, I think I had no idea again, no idea who he was, what his role was going to be. I kind of thought he was going to be this hard ass and, you know, but he has like a very like calming presence, but it's still firm, but you know, you still need to get your work done. And just, again, we talk about scenes that make movies and there's a lot riding on that one scene, the scene where he comes back, where Ruben comes back to the sober living house and reveals a change that he's had in his life is just gutting. And I think is just was a, perfect little button onto um, what had kind of happened. Now there's a, an entire act after that, that um, we, you know, don't need to necessarily get into, but, uh, but that scene in itself, I mean, is just something that kind of made it for me. So as a result of not really knowing what this movie was going to really be about, other than the generic plot description, because we didn't see trailers, because there's not stuff plastered all over the city with, for your consideration and everything. Um, I would have watched it, but I was very surprised by it, and uh, I thought it was great. So, Sound of Metal. Yeah, another movie really about empathy, not just for its beleaguered central character who whose entire life is basically upended overnight, not just in terms of his physical day-to-day -day reality, but also his profession being essentially compromised by it it's a really empathetic window into him. And like you alluded to the, basically just the deaf community as a whole to speak, mm -hmm. to speak broadly. I mean, learn to be deaf Four words, easy to say, gotta be just the most tremendous journey to actually realize. You know? Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I, I did like this movie as well. I thought the last scene without getting into it was a beautiful serene moment that was earned and totally agree. And uh, was was a well deserving respite for the character who was in such uh, turmoil the whole film. So respite's a good word. Respite is a very good word for it. Without it? saying too much more. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, I choose my words carefully. Yeah. <laughs> yes, good film. I like Sound of Metal as well. Did not make my list, but I did enjoy it. My number four is Nomadland. So, Chloe Zhao. I'd never really seen one of her films before. I think the writer was her big film before this, but this is a 
I thought a gorgeous examination of late life in particular, and also just a country at a crossroads. It kind of pays mine to pays a loving eye to people who consider themselves nomads, just modern day people who have kind of issued a, you know, a quote unquote traditional life for one reason or another and spend it mostly rubber tramping around meeting with people gathering in these little communities, but never really staying fixed and seeking a deeper appreciation of nature. I mean, this is kind of a, a Terrence Malikian kind of approach here. It's, it's like a, it's a Malikian tone poem of sorts that rests entirely on the reliable, sturdy shoulders of Frances McDormand, who is probably, I would say one of our great working actresses at the moment as she kind of tramps around rural America, working odd end jobs for peanuts, you know, Amazon warehouse, fast food, you name it. She interacts with a lot of really colorful characters who you're not really sure while you're watching it, but the credits make it abundantly clear that are mostly playing themselves. And that lends just a raw authenticity to so many scenes in this film that are, that are kind of jaw dropping and just, swell the heart both again with empathy i guess that's a strong word for me this year mm-hmm. and and also sorrow depending on the the testimony you're hearing fern mcdormand's character her backstory is i guess you'd say gently revealed throughout the course of the runtime although it's not she is a focus but it's also just about this life she's living that takes up so much of the the concern here Zhao is painting this portrait of a woman kind of at a existential impasse and it's it's lined with pain uncertainty and and just kind of a a streak of avoiding conformity in in an odd way and this character is is here for a a reason i mean there are financial reasons she's doing this of course but there's also kind of a deep-seated desire in her to do this in the same respect um i think the quasi-documentarian approach that this film gives us leaves open a lot of open spaces for reflection for the character, but also for us watching it, I think, as a lot of the, the grander, deeper questions in, in life are, I guess you could say, most appreciated by people who have reached a certain age and can reflect on these things in earnest. It just kind of, These things just kind of seep to the, the forefront and there's many moving passages in this movie delivered by, again, first-time actors. And th- whether they're con- conventionally acting or not, or they're just giving their life story, they're so beautifully delivered. And at times can be devastating, just expressions of, of humanism, I think, that that kind of you know leap off the screen and, and into the, the heart of the viewer. So there's a lot of amazing images in this movie, but I think... Fern's the image of Fern just driving in her van down the highway with, you know, the scenic vistas in the background to uncertain destinations will probably be one of the the most indelible images of the year. Yeah. And there's a lot of that that happens. There's not, it's not just her, it's not just her taillights that you're seeing constantly. I mean, people kind of come and go throughout the film and come into her life and there's something, you know, poetic about, what they're doing and then they leave and that's you know that's sort of being friends when you're 
in your 30s and 40s and after that you know it's like you get your people and then people other people come and go but it's interesting you you discussed it you talked about her backstory because you get an idea in the opening title card about this city called empire which is essentially is a city that capitalism forgot it was based solely on the production of i think it's sheetrock and once that sort of became an obsolete resource um the 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 plant that was supporting this entire town shuts down and basically the town just leaves the map and then it's just it's just a plot of vacant land at that point and so we're kind of dropped in we get that info and then we're and then we meet Fern immediately and we're sort of like, whoa, like, what's, you know, what the hell's going on here and how does she kind of fit into this? And then as you go along, you feel like you miss something almost. But then as you go along, you yeah, you start to learn more about her, her backstory and her past and everything like that. Um, I enjoyed this movie a lot. Uh, it is going to show up on my list a little bit later. Keep that on the back burner there. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, but yeah, Nomadland, uh, definitely a must watch. Uh, are we on your number four, man? Are we on your number three? Number three, actually. Number three. Uh, I'm too drunk. I'm too drunk to remember. (laughs) Speaking of being too drunk, thank you for perfectly. Wait, wait, are you you going where I think you're going right now? You absolutely. Because I might be in the same goddamn place as you. Number three is another round. Hold on. Let me, uh, let me, I don't know if you're going to be able to hear this at home, but oh, there's a clink of the glass. I've already three glasses in and forgot to take the cap off with the whiskey bottle. There you go. I'm going to pour another round, so to speak. Okay. All and, right. Uh, my number three is also number, another round. I love it when a plan so, comes together. Let's talk about it. So let's talk about it. So let me, let me, let me preface it by saying this. So, I think looking back on 2020, I think there were a couple of different uh, quarantine streams. I'm doing finger quotes that exist during the pandemic that I personally kept getting drawn to. Okay. So the first is comfort food shows, TV, things you've seen a million times, things that you don't have to think about. Oftentimes we'll throw on a bad action movie I mean, we watched Double Team a couple of weeks ago, you know, Street Fighter, just these types <laughs> of fun, like, you know, things to kind of chill out to if you catch my drift. Um, chill out. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the first type. You know, you watch The Office a million times. You know, you watch these things that you're used to that you don't want to have to try to think about. And then I think there's this other specific type of project, type of content and that I gravitate towards. And it's basically movies where people are having fun with each other. Here, like, here. They're out there. They're getting drinks at a bar. They're at a, they're at a dinner party. They're traveling. They're doing all this stuff. And I think that's the type of stuff you want to watch. Cause that's the stuff that you don't have. And so this movie specifically sociable films, this is definitely one of them for sure. Yes, I do have a 15-year scotch in my hand, and I, I don't want that to be construed as a full-throated embrace of alcoholism, which is what this movie deals in. Or Quite God literally. 
God yeah. knows, I, God knows, I don't want it to be an endorsement of the plot of the movie. <laughs> but, but let's just say that this aromatic, which rich glass of fine whiskey does make a good companion piece. Definitely. It, you know, it's and, and it's funny you say that because it's the type of film I I, I think about it in a similar vein to a movie like the Wolf of Wall Street or Scarface or Scott Pilgrim or Wall Street at another time where you're not exactly meant to idolize the characters, like the main characters because their lives pretty much fall apart as a result of whatever it is that they're doing, or they're just secretly just actually horrible people. But it's so fucking hard to not want to drink with people. Like it's just you don't want to go full Tommy. You don't want you don't want that part of it. But there's definitely an element where you're like, God, this is this looks like the most fun anyone's ever had in their life. Especially in quarantine, where you're not yeah, seeing exactly any, seeing four friends drink together. Yeah and have an amazing time it's it's hard not to be a little envious well for those who haven't seen it then what's what what give us a rundown and why why we wouldn't want to be these people but we sort of do secretly well it's a very interesting premise that was rife with potential i think four male school teacher friends decide to covertly consume regular daily amounts of alcohol to improve i guess you'd say their social character just how they approach the world and interact with other people. And I think more indirectly in an unspoken way, mitigate the depressingly muddy sludge of midlife burnout. (laughs) That's that's in a nutshell, the plot of this movie. Some people buy an expensive car. These guys. Some people drink at a school. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but the funny thing is about it is that it's not just four guys getting shit house that just sort of they go, well, maybe we should just do this all the time. No, it's very teachers. academic. Exactly. They're members of academia and it's based on a psychiatrist named Finn Skarderud, who I'm sure I'm not saying that properly, but well he done. has an actual theory that says having a blood alcohol content level of 0.05 will make you more creative and relaxed. And Honestly, it's really hard not to look at that and go, maybe he's right. I don't know. I mean, it's certainly in the fictionalized world of this movie. Really, the bad stuff starts happening when they decide to push it. So he says 0.05, Mr. Uh, our fellow psychiatrist, Finn. Then they, 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 their lives markedly improve, like just leaps and bounds. They're better teachers. They're better husbands. They're better fathers. And they start to push that limit to see, like, what's the tipping point of just drunk enough and just, like, able enough, really? (laughs) Right, right. You're just trying to find that right little, yeah. But it's very funny in between. Like, it's, you know, it sounds like it, it, of course, it's a movie, so things are going to happen, but in between that moment when they have the dinner to decide and then maybe like half an hour to go, there's just, it's just, it's just a romp really. Yeah. There there's, I mean, for all the humor in this movie, there's some real poignancy to it as well. And some of the stuff under the microscope in this story, I would, I would categorize as jagged and uncomfortable terrain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think anyone of a certain age will, find so familiar to be 
again, possibly uncomfortable, but mm-hmm. I most appreciated, I think the academic disposition that all four of these guys take to this process, like as if it's supposed to give this experiment an air of clinical legitimacy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, as opposed well, to just trying to convince themselves they're not just alcoholics. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the wide range of outcomes, I think that this experiment that they all undertake yields, it runs the whole gamut of inspiring, hilarious, effusive, sad, and just like you alluded to, sometimes downright tragic by the end of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My God, Mads Mikkelsen, what a treasure of an actor. What, a, tre- what a treasure of a man. He really is. He really is. I as, mean- our, as our focal point kind of into this story, his arc has just acted so ferociously in tune and it just sells all of the, the soaring highs and the, the cataclysmic lows that come with this and how he's dealing with, you know, his, his wife, we find out their relationship is way more complicated than you would think on the surface and dealing with the pitfalls of that and sweet Jesus, that ending. Yeah. Um, I'm still looking for ways to articulate what it did to me, <laughs> but I, I guess it's uh, most analogous to taking in a sunset, clasping a 21 year old scotch on the rocks. <laughs> It is just, it's an absolutely bonkers finale, which somehow brings everything full circle. Mm-hmm. It's, it straddles the line between, what would you say, giddiness, exuberance, and yeah. frankly, all-out transcendence. <laughs> and it just left, yeah. me, left me flying higher than a goddamn kite, and sounds well, like it did the same to you as well. Yeah, I mean, because the think about how much fun... I mean, at least for me, because the whole the, the basically we're not giving anything away by saying he's a school teacher at a high school. So the kids are excited to be done with school. They're excited to be graduated. They pass their tests thanks to whomever, you know, they're they're teaching and everything. So they're happy. One thing I did find interesting really quick before we jump to the ending is just how open they are about these high school kids drinking as well. You know, like there's a whole scenario, there, there, there's a whole scene in Mads' history class where they talk about how many beers you can drink and they're just having this free open conversation that will, that's never going to happen here in the United States. But so, yeah, the, the whole, the whole idea is they're joining this sort of very, uh, I don't know, excited group of kids. And so the exuberance is from Mads' perspective meshing with the kids who are you know so excited and over the moon to be graduating uh it's just a perfect little melding together of the two and it's the best final shot of the year really there's no there's nobody nothing nothing better sorry my bedroom just became a bedroom for a second oh. <laughs> <laughs> i'm coming to you live from my bedroom in case no one no one knew that and that uh, it just fulfilled it's it's all needed to be a little okay yeah. <laughs> i didn't want to cut you off because you were on a roll there i appreciate it thank but you there was a, a a decency issue that needed to be addressed <laughs> all right well I, I didn't hear everything you said because i was focused on remedying this but it sounds like you did a hell of a job <laughs> We don't know where he's played last year, but I'm sure he did a hell of a job. Are we on to your number two now? 
Yeah, my number two. Uh, okay, I have to get serious now. Wait, wait, wait. You did. You started with number three. You, I but your number three is also your number three. This did so. This is your number two then. Yes. Yeah. Do you want to? Do you want to jump in front? We could do that. You can do your number two. Uh, let's let's keep with the scheme. Go for it. All right. So my number two is Judas and the Black Messiah. Mm. Currently streaming on HBO Max for another couple of weeks. Um, and you know now you know why I had to kind of like center it back in. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a that was quite a quite a, a shark tank yeah. there we just did. Quick transition. Um, <laughs> but I think the 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 word that as I was thinking about this movie and where it would be and how I would describe it, I think the word harrowing came to mind. Harrowing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a harrowing film. I mean, it's anchored by strong performances to no, nobody's surprise by Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield and, and others. Um, And it's interesting because it's, it's, it's a film that in many ways is sort of similar in plot and also in scope to another Martin Sheen film, The Departed. Like it feels very much like that. And it has that kind of epic scale to it as well. So it tells the story of William O'Neill, who's Lakeith Stanfield, who is caught trying to impersonate a police officer during a car theft. And as a way to keep him out of prison, he's tasked by Jesse Plemons playing another police officer Uh, tasked with infiltrating the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party and keeping tabs on their leader, the enigmatic Fred Hampton, who's played by Kaluuya. But really what it comes down to, and, you know, we we, I I talked about it a little bit in the One Night in Miami segment, but um, it's a shame that this is all still happening today. We still have tensions between the police and with the black community. And it is just, it should make us sick that all of this shit is still happening. Um, but I mean, really the, 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 the driving force I think behind the film is the visuals from director Shaka King, who I don't believe I'd seen any of his other projects um, and the performances of Kaluuya and Stanfield, who if they weren't, known quantities before this film. I think they've arrived as legitimate stars, like with a capital S, like these guys are movie stars and can carry a film on their own. I think, I think both of their performances will go down as legendary, but it's really Kluya who puts his stamp on it. And he's just so engaging as so, as charismatic. so larger, enigmatic. Yeah. He just, life, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think he, he, bucks the stereotype i think the 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 fbi at the time seems like they want to paint him as this angry black person who is going to steal your children and indoctrinate everything into this ultra violent thing but i think the more tender moments of the movie are the the smaller moments you know, not necessarily when he's making these grand speeches and not necessarily when he's being loud and brash and talking about the plight of, of the African-American person in Chicago and in the United States. But it's where he's just being a normal person. He's brushing his teeth. He's talking to his girlfriend. He's reading a book. 
you know, Kalia is able to just sort of bring this character to life through both of those. And I was amazed to see at the end, or at least in reading a little bit, how young he was when all of this was going on. Yeah, 21. Like, like, 21. Like, yeah, well, we were just trying to graduate college at 21 without without dying. <laughs> yeah, and he's like organizing a multi-city chapter and trying to reach out to the different gangs and in the in the in the city to 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 take up his plight as their plight as well and um there's a really poignant scene where he meet where he basically goes into the lion's den and crashes the meeting of these racist looking dudes and after some back and forth some conversation the next thing wins them over yeah they're 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 working together because Focusing on the the common, you know, the commonalities. Exactly. It's not a black versus white right thing. It's a human rights. And we should all be trying to succeed or to, 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 to bring about equality because these, the, the issues that we're facing as a community are human issues. So help me out with this sort of thing. And uh, really you know, there's, of course, as it is with a lot of these biopics, there's lots of, you know, there's information at the end that maybe they didn't put in the film that they have title cards for. And the final title card with basically like what kind of happened to Lakeith Stanfield's character. Oh, yeah. That's the biggest dagger of them all. I mean, just when you find out. I mean, he's essentially going undercover, trying to bring this guy down as a way for him to avoid jail, for him to avoid multiple years in prison for impersonating a police officer. So to to kind of learn where that journey took him later in life is is gutting. So, again, this was also really close to I think still think One Night in Miami is the best ensemble, but this is one of the best acted and just grossly engaging films you sit with it it sit you you it sits with you for a while while you think about it after it's over yeah so. this is one of those movies that kind of i i'm sure you do this as well but movies dealing in some kind of real lived history like this it this is the kind of movie that inspires like that 30 minute wikipedia rabbit hole just to just to try to read up on any more of the things you didn't know about to fill in the gaps of all this totally this this amazing engaging history that you were pretty much unfamiliar with until you sat down to watch the film and in my review i kind of noted a piece of this wikipedia thing you know appropriately sourced college professors if you're out there sure this quote grabbed me in terms of the FBI's consideration of what Fred Hampton was doing at the time in 1969. So in 1969, the FBI special agent in charge in San Francisco wrote to J. Edgar Hoover that the agent's investigation had found that in Hampton city, at least the Panthers were primarily feeding breakfast to children. (laughs) Hoover responded with a memo implying that the agent's career prospects depended on his supplying evidence to support Hoover's view that the Black Panther Party was, quote, a violence-prone organization seeking to overthrow the government by revolutionary means, end quote. So this deeply manipulative conclusion 
predestined conclusion from Hoover. I think it does underscore what a uniting personality Fred Hampton was in just a scant 21 years of age. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was, it was, yeah, this movie, again, one of the few fighting for number 10 for me, I really did enjoy this film. It might be neck and neck, I think, with Palm Springs, now that I think about it, for my number 10, two movies that could not be more dissimilar. Yes, um, I know. The beauty of movies, right? Absolutely. Yeah, they yeah. can all be strange bedfellows, one one and all. Yeah, great acting and, and did kind of puncture a bubble, I think, about the the Black Panther Party that that needed to be popped at this point, you know, because some of the things you've heard about were there, of course, but this movie also focuses on the social activism i think that was not really part of the curriculum in all of our education so definitely yeah props I mean, the, to the, Black the, and that. yeah yeah at the end of the day it sort of unfortunately seems like at least leading up into this movie that j edgar hoover got his way and <clears throat> the history was rewritten as this ultra violent thing. Cause like he's, I I'm in the same boat as you and we're, you know, we're obviously a couple of educated white dudes and just really, really didn't know much about it. So yeah, surprisingly but, not part of the high school curriculum. Hey, so. Wouldn't you know it? Can you, yeah. <laughs> if I can get off on a brief tangent here, do you know one of sure. the things, one of the things I'm most disappointed with that I didn't learn in high school hmm. is, is the fact that, this is going to be a complete non sequitur, but it just popped in mind and it needs airtime. Do it. <laughs> the fact that Russia landed a probe on Venus <laughs> and we were not told this in school. <laughs> it's always bugged me. Like it took me a disturbingly long amount of time to know that. And I just want to slap the wrist of history teachers and curriculums around the country. <laughs> Cause it's not like, it's not like, they beat us to the moon and we just conveniently leave that fact out. This is, I mean, it's, it has no bearing on the United States whatsoever. Cause the thing got crushed in minutes, didn't it? Like, or just, yeah, it right. like, and it just the, it couldn't the handle run, the atmosphere. The runaway greenhouse effect of Venus just torched this thing in a matter of minutes, but it sent back pictures of Venus. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. That would and, have been amazing to see then. And it's amazing to see now, you know, I would have liked to know that, but Russia, so there you go. There you go. I digress. All right, what's your number two? My number two is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And this was technically a 2019 film in terms of whatever Oscar consideration it would have been eligible for. But mm-hmm. it was not really released proper until 2020. So I'm grandfathering it in. Okay. It's, it's my number two film. And... If there's any detractors, you're just going to have to deal with it. So you're going to you're going to have to permit me to wax a little poetic on this movie, Ryan, as it deserves it. Please, please do. (laughs) This is a movie that consists of beautiful fragments, a turned head walking toward a cliff with a precipitous drop overlooking a pristine grayed out beach, a stolen glance, an unfinished portrait deprived of its most emotive and enigmatic piece, staring at you from a distance, bridged by roiling fire. Chapter 28, if you've seen the movie, you'll know. Do we choose memory or do we choose life? Celine Siamis' Portrait of a Lady on Fire, 
ravishing exhibition of tenderness and passion, arrested by the frigid bounds of taboo. It's a stunner. I need not say more, as I prefer to redistribute the wealth of experience rather than hoard it for my own sadistic designs like Scrooge motherfucking duck. <laughs> End scene. <laughs> That's my number yeah. two. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was thinking about maybe taking you to task on that for the timing. Uh, but uh, you convinced me because it's 20, who cares? It's 2020. It was not released yeah. until 2020 for anybody to see without a, a press pass. Yeah. That's true. I guess I did see it in 2020. Didn't mm-hmm. we? I can't remember when we saw it. But anyway, that was just, that was a shock to me. I was literally, I was like, you said that and I knew what it was, but I needed to just confirm with myself. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, know I, it's it right? I know it's been a long year, but wait a second. Man. Well, I guess that gets us down to number one. Well, in the right. best year for movies ever, what's <laughs> your number one, Ryan? Well, we've already you already mentioned it. We brought it up a little bit before, but it's Nomadland. Ah, okay. Absolutely floored me. Mm-hmm. No question about it. The best film of the year. There's no other film that's as moving or as realistic or feels as lived in as this movie does. And I think it's encapsulated a lot, my feelings about it. There's a there's a moment where Frances McDormand's character, Fern, as you mentioned, has started her new journey as this nomad. You know, they call them nomads. They probably 30 years ago would have been called gypsies. But it's that idea of this kind of you follow the work. You go, you live in your van, you follow whoever will will pay you to work. Um, and she wakes up in the morning. She's living in this community that a friend of hers has told her about that. She's kind of taken the leap to go, well, I'm going to, I'm going to live here now. And she wakes up and the camera kind of follows her as the, the sun is just starting to, to rise a little bit. And the camera is kind of following her as she, waves hello to everybody and says hi and drinks her coffee and everything. And it's far enough away where it's still, you get to see the scope and you get to see everybody around them, but it's still close enough to feel very, uh, very intimate. And Fern is walking around. She's greeting people. You just feel a sense of peace. You feel a sense of, 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 of community. And, Basically, you want it made me you want to live in this movie for as long as you can. And I found myself thinking, well, if the rest of this movie is kind of like that, then we're going to have a hit on our hands. And sure enough, that's what happened. Um, But it's interesting dichotomy because where you or I or probably most people listening to this might find chaos, the people in these communities find peace. They find comfort. They find a sense of community within these places where people are living in their car. You you think that is the least, the last possible thing. That is your last vestige that you have. Um, but speaking of McDormand, we talked about a little bit. There's no doubt that this role was just made for her. I mean, she's stubborn yet survival minded, but she brings life 
to this character and doesn't ask for pity or bullshit for her situation. I mean, she has no other choice. She's sort of living this situation, her life. But I think she also seems to enjoy the journey. I think partly at the beginning, she was kind of put off by it. But the people that she meets and the life that she's now living. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. You know, I think she's she she warms up to it a lot. I mean, and while she is transcendent, it's the other inhabitants that, that you mentioned, the basically the the other the other inhabitants of the various I don't even know what you would call them, just I guess groupings of people, these these um, yeah, these kind of these ramshackle communities of yeah, it's, yeah it's similar trajectory it's tough to to kind of quantify and to really put into a, a word but um but they bring a sense of reality to it and i you know and and so this is the second film i, I mentioned it a little bit with never rarely sometimes always but it does really feel like a documentary and i think because of that it's because of these real people telling their real stories or the stories, you know, as, as they see it, it's a, you know, they bring the sense of realism to the world. They tell their stories to Fern in just a way that's genuine, authentic and heartbreaking all at once, you know, I mean, and it kind of within it all hanging over it is, I talked a little bit about Minari being an American story. Well, guess what? (laughs) This one is yeah. also a story of America and yeah. modern America. Yeah. yeah, they're kind of they're they're kind of uh, partners in that. Uh, in that absolutely in that the swaths of the swaths of people that capitalism can forget about and squash and you know, but it's also uniquely American in that all of these people from all different walks of life can come together in a melting pot and learn to exist and learn to coexist and 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 have their shared experiences in the oddest of places really it's an odd place to find a community but but they managed to do it and the last thing i'll talk about is bob wells so he's the founder of this rubber tramp rendezvous which is one of the first and last temporary locations it's outside of arizona and he has this phrase that he talks about and he has this phrase that really stuck with me and the phrase is instead of saying something is gone or that, you know, you're, you're happy for whatever, sorry for your loss, whatever. He says, you know what? We're all going to meet each other again some point. So see you down the road. See you down the road. Yeah. See you down the road. People come and go through Fern's life and her world. And while we see that familiar look of another van driving away as swanky or bob or whomever moves on to greener pastures there's always that feeling that they'll see each other again down the road whether they do or not who knows but there's definitely a palpable sense with this lifestyle so it's a beautiful it's it's a moving film and it's practically perfect i couldn't have higher marks for nomadland number one yeah yeah i think we kind of hit on the same point there where it's not it's not just the fiscal reality of this scenario for her that makes her character particularly interesting. You know, her, she lost her husband, her savings is pretty much depleted at this point, but there, I think there's also a part of her that just enjoys the soul seeking and enjoys 
the community aspect of mm-hmm. it as well. And it might it may be a increasing appreciation as the movie continues, but that's kind of what I stuck onto the most with that character. Is yeah. that is that, that that was kind of her evolution for me at least was a, a reality to kind of an appreciation for the nonconformity of it in some ways, even though you know, it's it's tough to say what anyone would do with the means to not be mm-hmm. in that scenario. But yeah, she finds the beauty in it for sure. It's not just a fiscal reality. Yep. Good pick, Ryan. Thank you. I'm very curious about what your number one is. So how to describe the film that prevented my third number one film in the last 10 years that featured a same-sex couple? (laughs) (laughs) Well, in one phrase, it's Fargo with fish guts. My number one film of the year, this insane non-year at the movies, is a movie called Blow the Man Down. Hmm. This is an Amazon original, I guess would be another first for me. Nothing has ever vaulted that high on my list from Amazon, at least. I guess Netflix did it with Roma a couple of years ago, so the streaming services are starting to win the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like a chilled oyster creaking open to reveal a shriveling black pearl, blow the man down, is this incredibly nifty Northeastern fairy tale about a violent manslaughter, B strong arming senior women, and C murdered hookers. <laughs> the film focuses on the Connolly sisters, played by Sophie Lowe and Morgan Saylor, who such believable siblings in this movie. You would think they are in fact genetically linked, but no, they just have a great connection. They're grieving the loss of their mother, which we will learn was a pivotal event in revealing the dark secrets of this small main fishing town in which they live. One of the sisters inadvertently ends up killing a man who took her home from a bar in an act of self-defense. And then the tortured soul of the town begins to unravel like a ball of yarn getting dropped off a cliff. (laughs) To quote a reviewer that I follow, this is a bold, bloody, and ferociously female film blow the man down is a deeply engaging study of male evil balanced on the scales with the vengeful capabilities of women so the performances the script the location they're all top notch but what really distinguishes directors daniel crudy and bridget savage their film is the personality and the confidence with which they tell it the film moves along as if i would say inhaling and exhaling with its own salty lungs, finding time for such flourishes like moments where the diegetic sound syncs up with the score and some kind of rhythmic bliss or cutting to interludes of fishermen seemingly out of nowhere, singing these bull mouth sailor tunes kind of out of time, I guess, but it's not just out of time. It's using this as kind of seasoning, I would say to establish its own unique character and texture. Margot Martindale probably gives the best supporting turn of the year as the matriarch at the top of this criminal pyramid of the town's quasi extended family. She runs her seedy operations behind closed, closed doors. And she takes, you would say special exception to what the Connolly sisters have unleashed in her town with this manslaughter. Blow the man down 
God, it's like 90 minutes of cosmic harmony at the movies, reminding you there's still a market for original stories that can be told and told well. And it's just a ton of fucking fun. I literally watched it the next day after seeing it the first time because I needed more. (laughs) (laughs) I just needed more. Yeah. I know the feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it was an unlikely film for me. It just kind of had the look. It just has that. It's not in the quite the same league as Fargo in terms of like generation defining crime classic, but yeah. Okay. (laughs) but 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 it's in the same company. It's singing the same song and I just fell in love with it. So blow the man down is my number one movie of the year and it should be available on prime to anyone who wants to watch. Well, I am definitely uh, blown down because I did not expect that came out of left field. <laughs> did you see no it? No idea. No, I haven't. And now I'm going to have to watch it. Oh, yeah. I really, really, one. I really want to hear what you, Yeah. I mean, I don't expect most people to love it as much as I did. It's not. Yeah. It's not the most, you know, critically or technically accomplished film of the year, but it's just a lot of fucking fun. And, and it just hey, I'm, all, I'm on board for that. It has its own genetic signature. It's unlike anything I saw this year. Yeah, check it out. So, so would we, I guess, say that uh, for 2020, at least, Amazon Prime won the streaming wars, <laughs> I guess. Sound of Metal, for me, Blow the Man Down, and Mangrove, and... Lover's Rock. Love Rock. Yeah, I... Love Rock. That's I, I, I mean, uh, those are all Prime. Amazon originals. Yeah, I, I, of all the main streaming platforms, I recommend I recommend Amazon Prime to most people who ask me which one they should subscribe to, and and I usually get a curious look on my face, or, or excuse me, their face. It's like that just always seems to come out of left field. As Prime initially was this kind of tacked on bonus just for being an Amazon Prime member, but I think they're mm-hmm. Prime Video. Yeah, 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 they're just kind of producing some good content. You know, and I, I don't feel like yeah. it's, uh, I have one night in Miami on my list, too. So I, I don't I don't I don't think they, it's uh, a, they spray it all on the wall and see what sticks kind of philosophy. I think they're they're trying to put their resources towards some good stuff. Definitely. Well, we did it. The kind of. pandemic <laughs> thought they could try to take it away from us. But yeah. I tell you what. When two white guys want to talk into a microphone about movies that most people have not seen, damn if anyone's going to try to stop them. <laughs> I'm not white, Ryan. I am clear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> True. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. COVID, and all, COVID and all 18 of its buddies was not going to prevent this from happening. <laughs> Death and all his oh. friends. Yeah. Well, Coldplay fun. Reference. I had fun. It is a Coldplay reference. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I, it's been sorely I, lacking. I know. I think there's I, so much that people could learn about me if they don't. Yeah. <laughs> if they don't know anything about me, you would never know that I like Coldplay. But well, Ryan, this was. But this was fun. I'm glad. This I'm, was a yeah. Fun. I'm really glad I'm, that we were able to. I'm drunk. This was a lot of okay. fun. <laughs> this was a lot of fun. I agree. <laughs> I, I swear, agree. and we don't have to do another two hours where we're talking the about the best movies of the decade. Holy, bottles like this high. I drank, I drank oh like God. a third. 
I drink a third of the green label, Johnny Walker, on this call. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. All right, Clayton. Well, yes. Save, in a year that uh, was anything but normal. I fucking can't stand that in those commercials when they go. It's yours. Anything but normal. But I'm glad they were able to get together. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Coke Industries. Um, but there is still one thing that can ground us. There is still one thing, one cent piece of normalcy that is out there. And uh, yeah, it's doing for our 13th podcast. year, I think yeah, I'm actually I'm working happy, with people uh, younger a to do it, than our tenure on this to, podcast. Uh, do it again next year, hopefully in person. <laughs> I think we're coming to a certain age where we're having to face some harsh realities now. Um, like working, like working with children. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Ryan, always a highlight of my year. Until next year, hopefully we can be in the same room. Definitely. Yeah. Talk to you soon, buddy. Bye. <laughs>